You're listening to the 411 on Mousecapades Radio. It's my station. The following is an original production of the Mousecapades Radio Network. Happy Friday, Mousecapades listeners. This is Vicki, and I'm here with Kaylee, and we are so happy that you are joining us today. We hope you're all safe and happy and healthy. This is episode 507, and you are listening to the number one podcast that entertains the space between your ears, the Mousecapades podcast. Today we are going to be talking about fascinating facts and backstories about your favorite Disney animations that you may or may not know about. But before we get started, we want to remind you that the Mousecapades podcast is a part of the Your Story Travel Company. At Your Story Travel Company, we can plan a magical trip for you on any budget. I'm going to start off by telling you that uh, Disney often deals in fairy tales for their movies, but not every one of them in their uh, legendary animation company production has been a case of smooth sailing. From racial controversies to box office bombs, here are just some of the fascinating facts about some of the Mouse House's most famous animated features. So Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs were, was the first light, like, just lengthened Disney animation ever and animation really ever. like elongated besides a short and so it was based on a 19th century german fairy tale named snow white and it was published in 1812 by the brothers Grimm, which i think most disney fans know that because their name is very popular because a lot of the disney fairy tales come from them correct yeah um and it was in the first edition of their collection Grimm's fairy tales the fairy tale features such elements as the magic mirror, the poison apple, the glass coffin, and the characters of the evil queen and the seven dwarfs, all of which are iconic and used throughout Disney parks, and they're used as Easter eggs in a lot of things. The seven dwarfs were first given the individual names in 1912, Broadway Place, Snow White, and the seven dwarfs. They originally didn't have names. Blick, Flick, Glick, Snick, Plick, Wick, and Quee. I'm glad they changed them. Those are so weird, and they all rhyme. I could you see kids trying to say that? I know, that some kind of bad name would come out. And then they were given different names, obviously, in Walt Disney's 1937 film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which are bashful, doc, dopey, grumpy, happy, sleepy, sneezy, which most people know, but you'd kind of be surprised even Disney fans sometimes lose track. But there are little known facts about this Walt Disney film. Everyone expected this one to bomb at the box office, and in hindsight, we know that the film was a massive success, but at the time, no one thought that this movie was going to succeed. Uh, except for Walt, I think. Disney took out multiple loans to finance the movie, even to the point of mortgaging his very own house. And believing that it would ruin his, uh, Walt financially, insiders referred to Snow White as Disney's Sally. Even Walt's wife, Lillian, thought that the movie was going to bomb. That's really sad. I don't know that I realized that. Did you realize that? No, but I mean, think about it. Like, honestly, if you were thinking realistically for the time period, you probably didn't think, I mean, 1937? Like Okay, but I'm thinking, and, and, and this is going to kill you because of how you are about wives and their being towards their husbands, but that's a time period where wives just trusted their husbands. Well, Lillian was different. <laughs> I'm just saying. And so they mortgaged their house, and I'm sure probably he didn't ask her back then. Nowadays, the husband would ask the wife. Yeah. It doesn't, maybe that's why she was so worried. It doesn't necessarily mean that she didn't support him, but I think she was probably just waiting for it to fail. Like, she was trying to be the realistic one, probably. But at the same time, you would have thought she would have supported him. I don't know. Anyway, Dopey was supposed to have a lot of dialogue, 
uh, but they could not find, because um, he was a chatterbox, but the producers looked and looked and they couldn't find the suitable voice for the bald dwarf that they were making. And so rather than give him vocals that they couldn't hear in their own minds, you know how you are when, like when you're reading yeah. a book and you hear a voice or something, they couldn't find that. And so they just chose to leave him silent as kind of the dopey character that we know and love. In 1944, it also became the very first film ever to release the soundtrack, which is nice, pretty cool and makes you happy because that's all you do is listen to soundtracks half the time. Yeah, definitely helpful for homework. But I cannot say I've listened to this soundtrack. I don't even know, the listeners might kill me, I don't even know if I've seen Snow White completely through, at least in one sitting. I know I've probably seen it all the way through in parts, but I've never sat down to watch it. You know what? I don't know. It's been a long time since I've seen it. I have. I don't know that I watched it with you, actually, so it's my fault. I failed you as a mother. You should I'm also five years into adulthood, so this is my problem now. Right, you're president. Okay, so overall, I don't think there were a lot of surprises on that one that I learned, other than the names of the dwarves. Yeah, their names were... I did know they weren't named because... You did me right here, and some of the listeners might be happy, but on Saved by the Bell, there is an episode where they're doing a quiz bowl thing, and one of the questions is, what are the names of the dwarfs? And then Lisa names them all, but then they're like, nope, that was the Disney version, they were not named, and then they were later named in a play version. Oh, So I knew cool. that just from watching that so much when I was little. And then the other thing was that Lillian didn't, I don't remember that, and I know that we've talked about this before in Disney history. Uh, things that Walt, where his support came from. And I just really struggle with his wife not supporting him. That kind of makes me a little sad. So the next feature film that we're going to talk about is Pinocchio. Disney's Pinocchio was from 1940 and based on the children's fairy tale that appeared in a newspaper. It was called The Adventures of Pinocchio. And it was written in 1881 and 1882 by a man named Carlo Collati. Yeah, Jiminy Cricket appeared as the talking cricket in Collati's writings and does not play as prominent of a role in it as it does in the Disney's movie adaptation. That is very interesting. Yeah, and I remember you saying when we were in Disney World that, like, you were surprised that Jiminy Cricket wasn't as prominent in things, but he is a much older character from 1940, like an original. So a lot of kids don't know who he is. Okay, but what you don't know, because you weren't me growing up, we used to watch The Wonderful World of Disney, and he always introduced it. Like, Walt did a little introduction, but Jiminy Cricket was a huge part. Yeah. And so that's why I, I was surprised by that. Yeah, and they did have Jiminy Cricket as part of, I don't think he was part of Wishes, but that old fireworks show right. when we went, he was part of it. So yeah. I don't know that kids knew who he was, but a lot of adults did. Right. So little known facts about this film, um, Disney has a habit of taking dark fairy tales and they turn them into really, really sweet, family-friendly um, stories, but it's kind of surprising when you hear originals of all the fairy tales, because they are very dark. Oh, yeah. So, and Pinocchio <laughs> is no exception. Um, the original Claudie stories are not for the faint-hearted, like Dad uh, was telling me about some of them, and yeah. I mean, I think it's cool that those exist, because I'm, I don't know a fan of dark things sometimes, but at the same time, when you think about it being Disney, it's weird. But Kaladi's goal was to showcase how hard it is to be a parent 
of a mischievous boy, although Kaladi himself was never a parent, which is really interesting. His perspective is anything but pleasant on the topic, as the puppet in his stories is penned from the very beginning as a disobedient rascal and a wretched boy. That is already far from the Disney I know, it sounds because on Pinocchio is so fun-loving. And... Yeah, and he's like sweet and innocent and he doesn't know any better. Pinocchio, in the author's view, should be allowed to learn the natural consequences of his faulty actions. Now, I'm I'm super big fan of this, but maybe not like physical, I guess. <laughs> um, but I'm super big fan of natural, natural consequences. consequences. Yes. However, some of the following natural consequences that transpired, they don't lend themselves to Disney's Happily Ever Afters, which that's an understatement. And, so <laughs> um, that, and that's why they changed it. Yep. Pinocchio kills Jiminy Cricket by squashing him, and it is on purpose. Because when we were looking this up, I remember Joey went on purpose. Like he was so sad. He was like, "Was well, not an accident." We're like, "Nope." But that's horrible. Um, obviously, kids step on bugs all the time, but it's Jiminy Cricket. Pinocchio gets his feet burned off. Neat. Geppetto graciously fashions new feet for him afterwards. Okay, well he gets his feet back, but like the initial burning of his feet is um not great. So. I'm glad that this is not a real boy. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, maybe that is why Walt did that, is to make him, I'm a real boy or whatever, yeah. because that makes me wonder. Because I was looking at that and your dad was talking to me about it and, and I was just like, holy smokes, that is very, who does that to their children? But you know, the sad thing is, Kaylee, there are people that do ugly things to their kids, so. I know it. Hopefully they didn't get the ideas from Kaladi's fairy tales. Um, also, another thing was that Pinocchio gets hanged by the fox and the cat on an oak tree, and he's left there for dead. And I know that I did not know this person. Uh, the attempt to kill Pinocchio is unsuccessful. And so just think um, what kids would have thought if they would have thought of that in, a, in an amusement park in the middle of Pleasure Island that turned a bad children into a, a mule or a donkey. That's not so bad when you consider the original events that happened in the story, which, you know, the hanging from a tree. Yeah, the mules and donkey is, that's more creepy to me than anything, rather than, like, cruel, I guess. I just think that's weird. I'm like, why? But, yeah, I do think Pinocchio is kind of strange for that in the Disney version. So Pinocchio, by deferent, definition of the character, is kind of un an ungrateful brat. Well, no doubt. Who isn't? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, God, thanks. I just had to say that. Um, his story is very complex, and along with the dark manner in which they presented it in the fairy tale, it offered no real interest to Disney who wished to give the world a children's story of a naive little boy in a cruel world run by men. Disney and his uh, crew narrowed it to a sweet, loving children's story of a naive and ignorant boy who ought to always listen to what his parents tell him, which in fact, is a good thing. I mean, you always want, in a fairy tale or a fable, you always want a lesson for kids to learn from. Um, I think that's why we like them so much, is because they have things that we can learn and use in our real life. Uh, Walt Disney himself was reportedly quoted as saying that mid-production, Pinocchio is cocky, too much of a wise guy, and too puppet-like to be sympathetic to the audience. In Disney's view, this story of a disrespectful boy who gets tortured and almost killed for his ignorance was not in any way suitable for children, you think? Yeah, I mean, that's bad. I mean, you can scare your kids a little bit into listening, but, like, not with that. I mean, and Kaylee's pretty dark. <laughs> I'm not going to burn my kids' feet no. off. No, 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 I know, but I'm just saying that even this uh, shocks your, your system. Yeah. So in order to sell his story, he painted a much nicer picture of a naive, helpless boy. 
Um, the lesson is that those who are brave enough and always truthful will find salvation, which truth be told is a story that's much easier for people to buy and for Disney to sell. That is um, a lot, but it's not over. <laughs> Mickey Mouse has been the central mascot, obviously, of the Disney Corporation since his creation in 1928. And I'm pretty sure like 90% of children know who he is at a very young age. Like I one would, of the first things they learn. That would be an interesting in poll to take, actually. Yeah. The iconic cartoon character has been, has seen many updates over the years, but his mouse ears, red pants, and white gloves are staples in the mouse's design. Just three well-placed circles are enough to create Mickey's recognizable silhouette, which is really interesting. I don't think it's interesting that yellow is not included in the staple colors, because I always thought black, red, yellow. I think it, well, all of your life it has been like that, and maybe that's why. Ah, that makes sense. It changes depending on the generation, I suppose. But this geometric representation of Mickey Mouse is called a classic Mickey, which Disney artists have hidden in a number of movies, including Pinocchio. After the Blue Fairy turns the puppet Pinocchio into a wooden boy, Geppetto and his cat Figaro. 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 Oh man. The, the name! How can, I, how can I not? Figaro, Figaro, Figaro. Sorry. I saw the name and was like, yeah. English pronunciation. Figaro and Goldfish Cleo celebrate his arrival. I remember the goldfish more than anything. Is that weird? I don't know. I, I just mean, liked the goldfish. I was going to say, I think that you pick what is important to you when you're watching a movie. When Pinocchio sets his finger on fire, Geppetto rushes to put it out, but they pass by a chair which looks like Mickey Mouse's head. I never knew that until I saw like a screenshot of it and somebody zoomed in. I know. I think that's why your dad showed it to us because he was like, this is so cool. It's slick, too. By the way, listeners, um, just so you know, Brad is always the production assistant or whatever, not assistant, the production guru, I guess, of all of our episodes. And, um, but he was really fascinated by this. And so he kind of took this under his hat and he's been talking to us all week. And so we thought, do a show like this, why not? And I hope Nick's listening because this is right up Nick's alley. He loves to find the dark side of Disney to find the, the backstories of stuff. So our next film is Dumbo. We're really taking it back to the originals, which, because I haven't seen Dumbo all the way. I don't even think I've seen a little bit of Dumbo. You, you know what we really need to do is watch, now that we have Disney Plus and have ones. the time, because we're yeah. quarantined, we should watch the old one and the new one, because Dad and I watched the new one, and we were pretty impressed with it, actually. Mm. Well, it's believed that the story of Dumbo, which came out in 1941, just right after Pinocchio, is loosely based on the real-life elephant Jumbo, a male African bush elephant born in Sudan in 1860. Wow, they really draw from, like, everything. I know Disney's super creative and twisting stuff, but they always have inspiration from something, which I think is cool. No, that is very cool. After his mother was killed by poachers, he was captured and sold to Lorenzo Casanova, an Italian animal dealer and explorer, and Jumbo was then imported to France and kept in a Paris zoo before being transferred to London Zoo in 1865. So this elephant was all over the place when he was very little. And it's kind of surprising that the elephant didn't die, because sometimes when mothers die of elephants, like, the kids die of depression, which is really sad. But a lot of times that can happen. Especially back then. Yeah. Because now we are... We know in, how to In help. the 1900s and in the now in our century, we know that and we know we need to help them yeah. if they don't. But he quickly became a Victorian sensation, a favorite of Queen Victoria's children. Jumbo spent his days giving visitors of the zoo rides on his back, which is not atypical for today either, to ride elephants. 
Oh, I know, but they used to do some... I don't know if they did that when I was little or when my mom was little, when the zoo first opened. You would ride as an elephant? Yeah, and they also used to have an elephant show. Huh. So... That's interesting. Yeah. Jumbo started to show signs of aggressive behavior, I wonder why, <laughs> which is now thought to be caused by neglect and poor health. He was fed whiskey and beer to keep him calm. I did know that part. Wow. Which only added to his health problems. Like, legit, this elephant is like... <laughs> It's a person. Indestructible. <laughs> the London Zoo then sold Jumbo to P.T. Barnum of Barnum and Bailey Circus in 1882. And in Barnum's autobiography, Life of P.T. Barnum, he noted that all of England seemed to go mad for Jumbo. Pictures, pamphlets, stories, poetry, hats, collars, cigars, neckties, fans, polkas. That's a lot for that time period, I yes. feel like. Well, the thing I think is interesting is what, what movie that's not a Disney movie does that tie with? It's The Greatest Showman. I know, and we just... No, no, no. I know that Barnum Bailey, like, there's a huge controversy with that movie. I know, listeners, this is not Disney. There is a huge controversy when that movie came out. I don't know if you even noticed that. I don't know that I did. It was on media all over. People were like, they cannot just glorify P.T. Barnum. He was a horrible man and cruel to animals and blah. Like, it was true. And they kind of just glossed over that. Well, see, they were like, Walt. Yes. Um, They wanted to sell something. All such items sold were sold by the tens of thousands in the stores and streets of London and all over British cities. That's a lot of consumerism for that time period. But think about it. It really hasn't changed. I mean, just like, what did you just do? Um, you, one of your favorite groups ever just came out with a new album and you went... Yeah, I bought it. And you wanted, you know, and you got a poster and you have stuffed animal and stuff. So, I mean, it's just... That's the thing. When they're popular, they get it and they can make money. Right. And it's been going on for years and years now, we know. So once in New York, Jumbo soon became the star of the show. He was advertised as the world's largest elephant and thought to be around four meters tall. And I can't convert for you from meters because I... (laughs) I can't either. America's so dumb with our system. It doesn't line up with anything. I apologize, listeners. I teach second grade, so... You at least teach some form of math. (laughs) I teach music. I can't do math. So it was believed that Jumbo brought in the largest crowd in the history of the circus, and in three weeks that Barnum had recouped the 2,000 pounds, which converts to $2,480 in U.S. money, so that he paid for Barnum. I mean, paid for Jumbo. It paid, he paid more than paid for himself, in other words, in the first week that he had him. And Jumbo continued to travel with Barnum and Bailey Circus until he was struck by a train, which I did not know. Did you realize that? No. Yeah, he was stuck by, struck by a train in 1885 because they don't have train crossings back in 1885. Oh. And I'm sorry, that wasn't funny, but I'm just thinking. I know. Not maybe that was one of the reasons they got train crossings. I don't know. But despite his death, the Jumbo craze did not go away it didn't diminish it continued for many years his hide was even stuffed and traveled with the circus for a further two years in barnum and bailey's life wow that is crazy that's sad they stuffed him so i wonder if he's still alive somewhere i mean i want not alive. alive i wonder if they still have that somewhere i mean probably i guarantee there's a lot of stuff that we have that i don't want to know exists <laughs> Okay, I, I don't have any stuffed elephants in our basement. Not I didn't us, stuff not our, us, our oh. country. Oh, I thought you meant me. I'm like, I didn't stuff No, there's own a cat. lot of stuff I don't want to know exists. <laughs> <laughs> but little known facts about Dumbo, the Walt Disney film. Well, in typical Disney fashion, the tragic events of the real-life premise are transformed into a story that's more palatable for public consumption. 
I don't know. I think that would have been palatable for me. I just would have been mad. Yeah. Um, in his own way, Disney always was striving to find the silver lining in any story while bring, still bringing important life lessons to the forefront along the way, which is great. We need those. Yeah, you need the happiness. Look at what's going on right now in our world. We need a good Disney movie about now. Probably. Dumbo almost landed on the cover of Time magazine, and that magazine had plans to honor Dumbo as Mammal of the Year. That's an award. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's so funny. But then Pearl Harbor happened and they opted for a more serious cover, so they still called the animated elephant mammal of the year in an inside feature. How nice of them. Dumbo is Disney's shortest feature film at just 64 minutes long, and it is the shortest feature-length Disney movie. That is so short. That's shorter than a decom. Yep. Walt was advised to extend the storyline, but he resisted, saying you can stretch a story just so far, and after that it won't hold together. So here's another thing I want to reflect back to that Mammal of the Year thing. I guess that's really no different than now we do Man and Woman of the Year. Except for... Yeah, I guess. Oh no, that's just so strange. <laughs> but... Not even Animal of the Year. Mammal of the Year, like it's so specific. Very true. Cells from Dumbo are extremely valuable. Originally, the production cells are one-of-a-kind pieces of art that were used in the creation of an animated film or a television show. So um, each one had been hand-painted by a studio artist on a piece of celluloid acetate and had been photographed over a background painting to create a frame of the finished production. Maybe it goes along with that puzzle we're trying to put together. Oh, <laughs> production cells highly sought after by animation fans and collectors with very rare pieces from the early days of the animation, fetching prices in the tens and even hundreds of thousands of dollars. That is crazy. It is amazing to me, even today, what people will pay for. What was it the other day? It was something crazy like a t-shirt from a concert that a famous singer had saying. People will pay like... $20,000. Yeah, it was $25,000 because he sweat on the shirt. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, who knew it went back that far? Yeah, and that group you were saying, like, they've handed out, like, water bottles before that they drink out of, and, like, people, like, don't ever wash it, and they, like, that I is don't, it's gross. weird. Uh, that's not like, I like groups, and, like, thank you for giving me your media while I'm bored, <laughs> but, like, also, no, you're a human. I don't care. <laughs> So production cells from that same film or even the same scene can have significantly different values depending on their desirability. So depending on what part of the movie it was, like, I always liked Timothy the Mouse, so I, I probably would want to own a cell from uh, Timothy. The part you like. Yeah, the part in the movie that I really, really liked. Factors influencing value include which character is visible, their size, their facial expression, and so much more. But not knowing that the original animation cells would someday be worth a lot of money, the artist that worked on Dumbo weren't very careful about preserving the art, which is sad, but again, how do you know what, what something's going to be worth hundreds of years later? I guess, but at the same time, because of Snow White becoming such a big hit, like, they it's had to have new. known, they had to have known something was, like, coming out, though, like, Possibly. that something was growing, or a little bit, at least. In fact, it was the opposite. Animators were working on movies like Fantasia and Dumbo, and they'd take the finished slippery cells and use them to skate down the hallway. Guess you gotta stay entertained without technology at that point <laughs> in time somehow. Between that and the fact that the earth tone paints used in the Dumbo color palette were particularly prone to flaking, any remaining cells from the film are among the most valuable of any Disney scene. That's insane. Could you see him ice skating down wall hallway? The yes. hallway and where him being like, hey, and then he's like, my turn. <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah, he would have joined right in with them. We know that from 
the movie Saving Mr. Banks, how uh, Tom Hanks portrayed that character yeah. based on what people have told about him. The next film that we're going to talk about is my favorite. I've probably talked about it a million times on the show, so most listeners that have listened more than once probably know that this is my childhood favorite movie. And I'm sure Kaylee's tired of hearing it. She lives with me. But Song of the South is the movie that I'm talking about. It is a 1946 American live-action animated musical film produced by Walt Disney. And I think that the reason that I like this one is because it is... um, I loved Shirley Temple movies as a child. And no, I was not alive when Shirley Temple... She was my grandma's age. Um, Actually, she's outlived my grandma, but that's beside the point. So these black and white films, and then they took Walt's imagination with the colored animation and brought it together. And I think that that's what it was it was for me plus add in music because we are the music family we love music in in all genres and so i think that that was why i loved it but it's based off the the books by uncle remus and it was adapted by joel chandler harris and the star of the show james basket who basket who played uncle remus in the film and it takes place in the southern u.s during the Reconstruction era. It's the period of American history after the end of the American Civil War and the ending of slavery. The story follows a seven-year-old that his boy, his name was Johnny, and it was played by Bobby Driscoll, who is visiting his grandmother's plantation for an extended stay. So Johnny befriends the man, Uncle Remus, one of the workers on her plantation, and takes joy in hearing his stories about Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Bear, Br'er Fox. And he learns from the stories how to cope with challenges he's experiencing while he's living there on the plantation. And that, I think, is another reason why I loved those stories. They teach a lesson. I just haven't seen this before. And also, Bobby Driscoll sounds like a very familiar name. And I don't know why. Well, it probably has some tie to uh, Disney, what you figured out last week. Probably. And I don't know if I told you, but Lee, we gave you a shout out for that. Because he was like, good call on figuring out Charles Muntz and Charles Mintz last week. Yay. Walt Disney had wanted to produce a film based on the Uncle Remus stories for some time, but it wasn't until 1939 that he began negotiating with the Harris family for the film rights. And then finally in 1944, filming for Song of the South started and the studio constructed a plantation set for the outdoor scenes in Phoenix, Arizona, and some other scenes were filmed in Hollywood. The film is predominantly live action, but includes three animated segments, which were later released as a standalone television feature. That's really interesting that they decided to build a plantation set. When there's so many plantations. When there's so much. I kind of understand it today because everybody today is just like, there's land, we must build. Right. But like then it was all plantation and they're like, we're going to build a fake one. And I had no idea it was in Phoenix, Arizona because they made it which I know, true movie fashion, they made it look like it was in the South. That's true. Some scenes also feature a combination of live action with animation. The Song of the South premiered in Atlanta in November 1946. Atlanta's a strange place to premiere, but I guess since it was a Southern-based film. I think so. Appealing to the audience. Yeah. And the remainder of its initial theater run was a financial success. The song Zippity Doodah won the 1947 Academy Award for Best Original Song. I find it really interesting because I feel like that ride in... Disneyland and Disney World, you would never know as a child. Like, I didn't know until you told me. I thought it was just a themed ride that they had, just like everything else. You didn't know it tied to a movie? No. Or a story? I just thought it was like the country bears. Like, they made it up. Well, and that is the thing I think that bothers me the most. We're going to talk 
more about the things that we might not know about this movie or you know what's caused such a problem um as a child i would have never thought of the things that people have put in it we'll talk more about that in just a second but um you didn't even think there was anything tied to it so i i feel like we could bring the movie back out you're not going to think the negativity that we're about to talk to talk about. So Disney's decision to make the Song of the South raised eyebrows right away from the get-go because slavery had ended and this movie had slavery in it. So the NAACP released a statement which stated that while artistic and technical aspects of the film were really impressive, the production helps to perpetuate a dangerously glorified picture of slavery and unfortunately gives the impression of an idyllic master-slave relationship, which is a distortion of the facts. Other critics described the film portrayal of African Americans as racist and offensive and claimed that the black vernacular and other qualities were stereotypes. However, other viewers disagree and think that the film was handled well. Even the actors defended their parts. Patty McDaniel told the Criterion newspaper, if I had for one moment considered any part of the picture degrading or harmful to my people, I would not have appeared therein. And the star James Basket agreed, saying, I believe that the certain groups are doing my race more harm in seeking to create dissension than can ever possibly come out of the Song of the South. It was meant to be a fun-loving story, much like Shirley Temple. If you never watched Shirley Temple, I apologize. But honestly, it's a cute, it's a cute movie especially for little girls who like to sing and dance i think that they would like it kaylee watched it when she was little she doesn't like to watch it so much now but i will still if i pass by a shirley temple movie if i have a few minutes i'll sit and watch the rest of the movie because it was uplifting and the fact that those two actors acted in that movie and said that that again and that, this is way before how bad media is now because we have social media yeah um they're saying they're turning this into something that it's not. And I feel like that's a lot of what we have even today on media is that we want to always find the bad. Why, why don't we do that opposite of that and always find the good in something and, and try to think that people are trying to do good rather than always trying to find the equal. And it, it makes me very sad. Yeah. My whole thing on it is like, I think it should be able to be played but I agree how, like, I've never seen it, so I can't say that, like, I think it was outright offensive. But I do feel like if they were to re-release it, they need to probably put something, when I was reading that statement that that company put out, how it was, like, it was showing, like, an ideal relationship between a slave owner and the slave, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, why don't you just preface the movie with that? Right. Because then it would spark questions like, did this exist? And it's like, you're promoting, I don't know, because humans are dumb and we just repeat everything. It seems every hundred years, we, I don't know, just we're dumb and we repeat mistakes. So I don't know why we can't get past it. They don't just put a thing and then promote positive conversation about it rather than just wipe it away. Because I'm like, if you wipe it away, somebody down the line is going to be like, why can't we do this? Right. I'm like, bro, you got to know it didn't work. It right. was not okay. Right. So you just have to be careful. So Walt Disney pushed for an Oscar for James Basket for Song of the South, and he told Gene Herschelt, then the president of the Motion Picture Academy, that Basket's performance was his own creation, almost wholly without direction, in quotes. Disney's efforts worked. James Basket received an honorary Oscar in 1948 for his role as Uncle Remus, but sadly he died just three months later at the age of 44. Holy cow. So you, young. I really want you to watch this movie because no way did I ever think that man was that young. Really? And, and, it, and it's nothing personal. I'm just saying 
I always thought Uncle Remus is like your grandpa figure. There's somebody that you listen to stories that they pass down for years and years. That's true. But then you also have to think about people at that age. Like when you watch movies of people playing high schoolers and today they use older people to portray young people. But back then you just looked that old. You looked 30 when you were like 15. <laughs> because you work so hard. Yeah. And so like, I think it probably was just that. Like he just looked older because of the time period. Well, due to the controversy surrounding Song of the South, it has never been released on home video in the U.S., though the film has been reissued several times, including a re-premiere that was held in Atlanta for its 40th anniversary in 1986. It has never been released on home video in the United States. Whether there are future plans for a release remains to be seen, and while Disney CEO Bob Iger has called the movie antiquated and fairly offensive, Fans have been rallying for years to get it released. Some of the musical and animated sequences have been released through other means, and the full film has seen home video distribution in other countries. Examples were Japan and Europe. The cartoon characters from the film have continued to appear in a variety of books, comics, and other media. The Disney theme park ride Splash Mountain is based on the film. Like I just said, I just don't get it. Well, but I guess like, I think if you do what you're saying, or there are other movies on um, Disney Plus now yeah. that have the little thing. The little, like, these do not represent our views today, but in the current times that these came out, they appealed to the audience, blah, blah, blah. Correct. And there are still people um, that are African-American that support that movie because it was a good childhood memory for them, and I don't know why... When something is a good childhood memory for you, why um, it can't just be that way? Again, I know I'm I'm always trying to think half full glass instead of half empty, but it just makes me sad because it was such a great childhood memory for me. I remember going to the movie theater to watch it. Um, I didn't remember it being 1986, but I know that they they showed it at the Dollar Theater that we still have here. That unfortunately it burned, but they're trying to rebuild it. But I remember going with your grandma to watch that movie, and I just loved all the songs. They were so uplifting, and we sang them for days and days. They're just catchy. It's like we um, we're all in this together for, for yeah. right now. And how um, we watched that interview with the cast from High School Musical, and they said, "Who knew that?" this many years after we take that, that this would be a theme or an anthem for our country while we're going through a pandemic. Yeah, it's insane. And I do, I guess I can think of the reason why there needs to be some sort of warning or something about it. Because when you're a child, you don't recognize the bad stuff in movies. Like which you is just good. Said, which is good. But it comes to a point where like, you're a grown adult and you're like, I don't see the problem with that. And it's like, there was a big problem, but they were never told just like, my story of when I was in third grade and I had those pictures right. from a museum of the Ku Klux Klan and I had no idea so I was just like these people in ceremonial robes and I just didn't know that that was horrible and there was a whole section of history devoted to that so I do think it's important that people understand that it was bad no no I agree that is true uh, I think you need to preface that story so that listeners have an idea of what's going on Kaylee's uh, grandparents ones that live in, in in Georgia, close to Atlanta, but not too far. And they were doing a Flat Stanley project for her and Flat Stanley came to visit her. Well, the pictures were due one day and the pictures arrived the night before. Well, um, Brad's parents are very innocent and naive and live really much in a time like right after they graduated in high school. It's, they're, they're very modest living people. They don't have central air and heat. They do have city water now. For, they just got indoor plumbing, like, within the last... Well, not time. indoor plumbing. Oh, yeah. 
they just get city water. They've had indoor plumbing for a while, but they live very modestly in more of a countryfied kind of life. And so she wanted to send it to them because she always remembered the fun that she had when she went there again a child's perspective versus someone that's a little bit older. And so they sent, that's what, this is where this is going with what she's talking about. So she had the project the next day, it was her day to present. She just took the pictures. And so while she was doing the, the pictures and we don't know how she knew what a ceremonial robe was because she was nine years old. And I mean, she had a big vocabulary, but it was pretty hilarious. Her teacher came up to me after school and said, hey, I just want to let you know before you show anybody else those pictures, um, there's a picture in there that's kind of disturbing or inappropriate. Well, they had taken Flat Stanley to the local museum in their small town. They live in a very small town, Ringgold, Georgia. And um, there's a whole section in there about the Ku Klux Klan because it was a thing. I mean, it was a part of their history of that town. And they didn't think they were doing anything wrong by that. And, and it didn't hurt anything because Kaylee didn't know what it was, but she's right. You do need to. <laughs> you have to know, because otherwise it's bad. Like sometimes when you don't know at a certain point, it's bad. And at that point, she was so naive. She had no clue what was going on, but they, innocently, they were not doing it to be malicious. They were not doing it to stir anything up within Kaylee's school or anything like that. It's just a part of their history and they didn't think about it before they sent it. So that's how that story is. I know that kind of got off of the Disney, but I know what she's saying. She's right. We need to have a little background on things so that you understand it. So the next film that we're going to talk about is Bambi. And so Bambi was a 1942 American animated file based on the 1923 book named Bambi, which is A Life in the Woods by Austrian author Felix Sultan. And the main characters are Bambi, which was a mule deer, and his parents, the great prince of the forest, and his unnamed mother, because she's not important, I guess, and his friend Thumper, a pink-nosed rabbit, um, Flower the Skunk and his childhood friend and a future ma mate, Faline. I believe that's how it said. Um, little known facts about this Walt Disney film. I feel like this one's a little more innocent than some of the other ones. Like, oh, yeah. obviously, like, the deer is shot, but, like, that's a lot less horrible because it's, like, for some people who are, like, vegan and, like, super into animal rights, I understand they're upset. Right. Like, this is much more common than burning a child's feet off. So Correct. For the movie, Disney took the liberty of changing Bambi's species into a mule deer from his original species of a roe deer. Since roe deer are not native to North America and the mule deer is more widespread, which I think is a super good detail because some people overlook stuff like that and they're just like, we're gonna throw this in here because we want it. And it's like, that does not make sense in any of this context whatsoever. There originally was a brief shot in a scene where Bambi's mother dies of her jumping over a log and getting shot by a man. However, after careful consideration, the filmmakers felt the scene was too dramatic and that it was emotional enough to justify having her death occur off screen, which is the true because I know because so you know many what? people are just like you hear that shot and like a lot of people say that is like one of the worst Disney deaths to this day. Well, when I first watched that movie as a child, I don't think that I realized that his mom died, or her mom, or what I can't remember if Bambi's a girl or a boy, but I don't think that I knew that. Ah. And probably because they had it happen off screen. So the voice of Bambi was narrated by Donnie Dunnigan, and he spent like 25 years in the Marines. He was a decorated Vietnam War veteran who had rose up in the ranks 
and had 13 promotions in 21 years and has, he recalls, held such honors as being the youngest ever drill instructor in addition to receiving a blonde star, three Purple Hearts for a service, and he retired as a major in 1977. He was finally able to talk about this little secret he'd kept from his colleagues all those years ago, long before he was barking orders at new recruits that all definitely heard his voice before as children when he was a far less menacing character to them because he was Bambi. Um, there's a psychological disorder known as Bambi complex. Bambi, the cute little deer whose mother got shot and killed is also the namesake of this other not officially recognized complex. People affected by the Bambi complex are very sentimental and sympathetic towards wildlife and wild animals, probably uh, animal activists, yeah. what you're saying. And they usually have very strong feelings against hunting, controlled buyers, and any other inhumane treatment of animals, especially cute little ones like deer. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's as much controversy around this movie as there had been around other ones. I think the biggest thing was the deer getting shot, but it was off screen, which I think was a good call. And now, I mean, even today, deer is one of the things that some people live off of the meat. Yeah. They don't, that's all they eat. They don't ever eat cow or chicken or piggies. They eat that. I think that is really interesting and there's a lot more that we can delve into. So I hope that if you guys enjoyed listening to this, um, and learned a little bit more about one of your favorite Disney movies. We hope to do another episode because there's many more dark, deep secrets that we could be pulling out of the Disney Walt. A uh, Disney Vault. <laughs> yeah, the Disney Walt. You're not wrong. <laughs> if you're interested in being a guest on our show or you have a question or comment, all you have to do is email us at mousepadespodcast at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to book a trip or you just want a free quote, text me at 636 Three seven three four four nine seven, or contact me at Vicky V I C K I E dot Black at yourstorytravel.com. You can check us out on our social media accounts, yourstorytravel.com, or our Facebook page, The Masquerade Podcast. Be sure to listen to Wednesday's show as we dish the latest rumors and news. And as always, thanks for listening to the number one podcast that entertains the space between your ears, The Masquerade Podcast. Well, Kaylee, I definitely think it's about that time. Disney love and pixie dust. Have, Have a magical day, day my friends. Dad, just so you know, you write, you write like an instruction manual, but you don't like reading instruction manuals. <laughs> I don't get it. I have to pause. Special doc, dopey, grumpy, happy, sleazy, sneeze, not sleazy. Oh no, I said the wrong word. <laughs> and, and the Vicky, V I C K I E dot black at your story travel dot company dot com. Excuse me. <laughs> Let me go back. She's to tired. Do, 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 do. <laughs>